American political establishment was behind and demanding such a revaluation, and it was revalued five times upwards, the Japanese yen, against the US dollar. Five times, I mean, this is really fantastic if you think of it. And uh, the, uh, the latest numbers are two-digit numbers, something like, what, 70? Uh, 82. Hmm? 82. 82. 82. So you see what I'm talking about. And did the uh, correction in the trade imbalance occur? No, it got worse, and it got worse and worse. The more, the more the Japanese yen was revalued upwards, in other words, the dollar was reduced in value relative to Japanese yen, the trade imbalance got worse, just the opposite what Friedman said would happen. Just the opposite. And this has been uh, going on for half a century, or almost half a century. So how much more beating the dollar will have to take before the, uh, the, uh, uh, the mechanism, Friedman's uh, balancing mechanism will kick in? How much more beating? This is really incredible that nobody asked the question. Now, how far do we have to push this policy? Yes. I just thought I would share. There's an old saying in entrepreneurial circles. <clears throat> the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, this is really incredible. The scientists or pseudo-scientists, people who pretend to uh, use reason and analyze cause and effect and so on, are completely blind to what is happening. This is a case, the history of the Japanese-American trade for the past half century is, uh, is just an incredible story. It's just an incredible story that nobody had the moral courage to say, get up and say, it's time to admit that we have been wrong. And it's time to correct this. The American uh, industry, the American economy was strong as long as the dollar was strong. And then we bought into that stupid, idiotic, and rotten theory uh, that uh, the worse, the weaker a currency is, the better it is for trade purposes, you know. And as a result, the American industry was dismantled, uh, most of it, with the exception of the war uh, industry and maybe the airline industry, but even that is questionable. But take the car industry or the television or production of VCRs and, and other the, the, uh, computers included. The American industry and its strength just disappeared, disappeared, you see, as a result. And now the country is exposed and it's also humiliated. Not just it, it has uh, become weak, 
but it's exposed to endless humiliation. And all because of a foolish theory which was not examined at the time it was announced. And, uh, and of course you see that this is again a cover-up from the gold because under the gold standard there's no question about floating. It was natural. It was natural that exchange rates were stable apart from very minor uh, variations. But once the fl uh, floating was glorified and uh, uh, it was pretended that this is the solution to the problem, the, uh, an extremely strong country, successful country, the American uh, industry was the envy of the world. Everybody said, well, you go to America and learn the American methods and then go home and uh, imitate it and then your country will reach the same level of uh, standard of living and uh, the, the same uh, power, uh, what the Americans have done in something like a couple of generations uh, because the United States was just a poor agricultural country around the time of the, uh, of the uh, um, American Civil War and it then became very powerful because it had a currency which was uh, anchored to gold, and then this floating completely uh, destroyed this. So even today, I think it's fair to say that this is a taboo subject. It's uh, you, you as an historian or economist are not free to discuss this because it's still a dogma, an official dogma, and any deviation from that is, of course, sacrilegious. That. Uh, that uh, floating is good for you, uh, devaluation of a currency is good for your country, and uh, the uh, way forward is through weakening of the currencies. Now, of course, what this means is that, as the saying goes, there's a race to the bottom. All these paper currencies are trying to uh, get uh, make or countries trying to make their currency weaker and weaker and weaker. So obviously, uh, the end of the road is that all currencies will lose all their values and the world will uh, uh, deprive itself, uh, not just currency but industrial strength, agriculture, and so on. There will be a very, uh, very Sorry, Anne. Now, I also want to make a second point about this floating idea, that uh, it's also dishonest. It's dishonest uh, for the following reason. Because uh, in this case, I take the example of uh, China. The United States declared that China has this tremendous uh, trade surplus because it is uh, sticking to the wrong exchange rate. The uh, uh, Chinese currency is kept artificially weak. 
and the, the uh, solution is uh, the same as in the case of Japan to revalue the yen, keep revaluing it until it reaches the point where the balance of trade will uh, happen and and that is the way to control the problem of trade imbalances in the world. Now, in this case, you can easily see through that actually this is dishonest because obviously the Chinese carry their books. They also have bookkeepers, you see. Even communist countries have to have <laughs> bookkeepers. And the unit of bookkeeping is not the dollar for the Chinese, it's the, the yuan, or renminbi. I, I, uh, I know there is a difference between the two, but this is not important for our purposes. They have a unit of their own, and if they revalue this upward, as the Americans demand, then the consequence is that they are forgiving, at least in part, the American debt. The Americans already owe an, an enormous amount of debt, which is shown up in the uh, holdings of, Japan, of China of U.S. Treasury paper. This is all debt. The Chinese have lent money to the United States. They are paid for their uh, experts, but they, they remit the money right away and invest it into the, uh, into the, in the U.S. Treasury market, uh, by and large, also others. Now, the fact is that when the Chinese revalue their currency upwards, in terms of the two currencies, this means forgiving a large part of the debt which America owes Japan. Now, I mean, obviously, if the, Jap if the Chinese want to do that, that's their privilege. But uh, common sense suggests that at least the Americans should be grateful and say at least thank you or, or acknowledge that there was a transfer of wealth by raising the value of the Chinese currency unit. Now rather than doing that, the Americans deal with China as if it was, uh, as if America was the creditor and was dealing with the delinquent debtor. Just the opposite what actually is the case. You know, it, I mean, this is uh, almost unprecedented historically that a country which is deep in debt, rather than hat in hand come and ask for terms or delay or better terms, or even forgiving that, uh, rather than that, takes this conceited and haughty attitude and try to dictate exchange rate policies, that you've got to write off so much of the debt, I owe you because, etc., etc. Now, you can 
deal with your trading partner in this way. And uh, I, uh, I would uh, like to suggest that the Japanese are very proud people. And of course, on the other hand, here is uh, the, the richest country in the world, the United States, which is dealing with a country which has been one of the poorest for a long, long time and has been an underdog and uh, the Chinese people are still by and large very, very poor and have a very low standard of living. And uh, uh, so on what grounds can a rich country demand forgiving that from a poor country when this, that, uh, when the uh, outcome of this is really just to continue uh, what is known as conspicuous consumption. And uh, that is my little story why I consider floating dishonest as well as counterproductive. It's counterproductive as I explained because it, uh, the terms of trade deteriorates, but at the same time it's also dishonest because it, it suggests that this is the, uh, the right method. Okay, now um, I, I'm also talking about in my paper about the secret of gold. Why is it that gold is the uh, ultimate extinguisher of that, which is one of my cardinal points. Uh, and uh, I keep coming back to this. I'm trying to convince you and everybody else who cares to listen that gold is indispensable in the monetary system because this is the rampart against uh, the flood of debt that would just inundate the world and all countries would, uh, would uh, uh, suffer as a consequence. The, uh, that would destroy production uh, efforts, saving and, and so on and so forth. And in order to avoid that outcome, you need gold. But what is the secret of gold? What is that property of gold which makes it uh, suitable to become the only, really the only, well, silver may also play that role, but it has been uh, demonetized uh, a hundred years before gold, so it didn't have much of a chance to uh, test its strength as, as a uh, that extinguishing uh, money, silver. Uh, so let's just talk about gold. Well, the answer to that question is uh, what we have started with this course a few days ago. We started with the idea of gold having the property that its marginal utility declines at a rate slower than that of any other substance within the observation of human beings. 
Now, it could be that in other galaxies there are other intelligent people and they have uh, also developed a monetary system and it uses something else. This we don't know and there is no way to find out, at least for the time being. But as things are here and now, there is no match for gold when it comes to the uh, declining marginal utility. Uh, uh, marginal utility is superior if it declines more slowly. It means that if you make your measuring rod from this material, it will be uh, more trustworthy, it will be superior to measuring rod made of any other material. Now here we are measuring value, not length, but it's, it's quite clear that the analogy is valid because if you start making your measuring rod out of an elastic material like rubber or name it or whatever else it is, but if it's elastic it's not going to serve the purpose because it would cheat either the producer or the consumer. If, if uh, you stretch it you are cheating the producer. If you uh, compress it or you uh, make it shorter, then you are cheating the consumer. In either case, it's not equitable. It's uh, a source of friction and ultimately uh, grave problems. And therefore, you have to discard that material and make, start making your measuring rod of a better kind of material. And that's true not just to measure length, but also measure value. And that's exactly uh, what it is. Now, we also reformulated this property by saying that the uh, spread between the ask and bid price in the case of gold is is constant whereas in case of other <coughs> other goods other commodities the spread varies with quantity so there are various ways of explaining that but that is the secret of gold and that's uh, that property is still there and uh, the all kinds of arguments that gold has changed its character, it used to be stable, let's admit it, it was an anchor, a possible anchor, but not anymore because gold is volatile and it changed, which, uh, which is just foolish talk because the fact is that the variable gold price is not reflecting a property of gold as such, but it's reflecting property of the dollar, which in which the gold price is quoted. So the the value of gold still has the property what it used to have through thousands of years. And uh, again, we pay homage to Karl Menger, who was the man uh, who formulated the concept of marginal utility. As a matter of fact, he was interested in the question of origin of money, and that's why he created that concept. 
and then the concept of marketability and the concept of bid price, ask price, and what we have been through, this is all due to him. Now, a lot of uh, economic textbooks say that actually the credit goes not to one man, Karl Menger, but three, and they mention uh, two others. Uh, one is the uh, Jevons, Jevons, and the other is Walrus. Now, Jevons was uh, British. British, and Walrus was Swiss, and they were perfectly good economists, but it's, it's uh, the, the uh, I don't think what they did or tr were trying to do is exactly what Menger was. This is, I say, Menger was studying the origin of money and came up with the uh, only acceptable theory how money immersed, evolved through a long, long period of time. We don't even know how long it was or when it was because that um, story is lost in the uh, misty uh, prehistory of human beings. Uh, no writing in those days, no records obviously survived. And this is uh, just uh, using the power of your intellect to reconstruct what could have happened. And Manga did it, and Manga did it brilliantly. And uh, our story here, trying to develop a theory of interest, is in imitation of Manga's original <coughs> methodology. So I didn't want to miss this opportunity to give credit to Menger. Now here we come to a very interesting uh, historical episode, which is the story of silver. Just before this lecture, somebody uh, came to me. I forget who it was. So please identify yourself if you recognize. You were. Yes. What was your question about silver? Or, or comment on silver? Uh, no, that wasn't me then. Then it was Somebody made a, a, a remark about silver. Oh, no. Who was it? <laughs> well, I make a confession here, and, uh, and uh, I do this in all humility. I. Uh, in my early writings, and early means uh, 1990s, I also took the position, oh yes, the statement was that the demonetization of silver in 1971 was uh, due to the market. The market demonetized silver. Who was it who made that? Oh, Peter. Peter, uh, I, I uh, was of that opinion myself for a long time, until quite recently. As a matter of fact, it was last summer when I was uh, set up uh, very nicely in a, a nice villa in Acapulco, thanks to my friend who provided the facilities I had servants at this had nothing to do but do research and writing very pleasant and and I did 
in particular, I researched this question. What is that thing that happened, if, excuse me, in 1871? And what, were the, what was the sequence of events and uh, the interaction of events? And uh, uh, this is a very complex, very difficult question because the uh, exact sequence of events uh, could be decisive. So I uh, must confess that I came to the conclusion that I was wrong all along. What I did earlier, I simply accepted the common view, which was shared by Mises, among others, but also people like Friedman and others. Uh, in fact, the vast majority, in, I don't, can't even think of anybody who challenged this. The idea was that there was an historical movement, a secular movement, which pushed silver progressively into the background and promoted gold, and so it was just a natural outcome that silver finally fell out of the uh, of this privileges uh, position of serving money and gold uh, prevailed and the world gave up by metallism the two metals gold and silver simultaneously serving as money and went to gold monometallism. Now that's not what happened and as a result of this research and um, I'm, I'm going to publish this where you can read it but I just give you a little foretaste of what I found was that the, uh, the circumstantial evidence is there that there was a conspiracy and the conspiracy was between two countries and one country, the one which uh, took the initiative, was Germany. And the other country was, uh, which, which uh, followed suit, was the United States. And there is circumstantial evidence that this was not an accident, that they both did the same. Germany demonetized silver first, and the United States demonetized silver a year or two later. What actually happened was that there was not even a Germany a few years earlier because Germany was born as a result of the Franco-Prussian War, uh, which broke out in 1870 and lasted a little over a year. And, uh, Paris was occupied, in particular the Palace of Versailles was occupied. And of all places, the German Reich was declared or announced the establishment of the German Reich under Prussian uh, leadership was announced in the Palace of Versailles. Uh, there was a German victory, there was uh, war reparation payments and the 
Germans insisted on gold payments, an enormous sum of, forget how many millions of gold francs. Hmm? Billions, I can't remember. Yeah, uh, but that's not the point, but a, a huge sum uh, by those, time, even by today's standard in terms of gold. Okay, and uh, uh, the new Germany, the German uh, Reich, empire uh, wanted gold currency and they got it through the indemnity and also they uh, announced their their intention of melting down the current uh, coins in the various German states or principalities or dukedoms or what have you which united under the Prussian leadership as part of the uh, empire and collect all these silver coins, melt them down and <coughs> sell the silver in the world market. So this was like an invitation to speculators that look if you sell silver before Germany does then you can make a, a nice profit because uh, uh, the price of silver is bound to fall. Now, uh, in the United States, uh, okay, so you can say Germany was a part of a new country at that time, a newly established empire, a late comer to the club of uh, empires, British, French, and others. <coughs> And, uh, and uh, the first thing they did was to <coughs> announce the demonetization of silver. The United States was another part of the country, thanks, and also it was victorious in the battlefield because we refer to the American Civil War, where the uh, northern states were victorious over the southern states, so they also had their uh, war indemnity wasn't called that, but obviously the northern states benefited financially uh, as a result of their